production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Zach Bush is an author, humanitarian and doctor who is changing the way we live our lives through his work exposing the human and environmental impacts of chemical farming. His wisdom talks to the journey for personal meaning beyond the ego and the quest for universal consequence beyond the material. Zach reminds us that life and death and mystery and order are so much more curious and more plentiful than we can comprehend. In his second and face-to-face appearance on the life of greatness, we traverse the connection between Mother Nature and our health, how heartache and love are not exclusive, and how to be a spiritual being in this human experience. To be loved is actually not so much to receive from somebody else, but for somebody else to witness so much beauty in you that ignites inside of yourself the love. So it's not that being in love actually sends a love vibration into you from me. That's not it. Instead, if somebody sees you, sees your beauty, it's going to ignite in you the vibration of love because you have been witnessed. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Zach is a board member of the Australian Farmers Footprint, a national non-for-profit organisation giving voice to Australia's regenerative food story, whose focus is on rebuilding organic matter and living biodiversity in soil, which in return produce increasingly nutrient-dense food. Zach is wise, remarkable and someone I deeply admire whose wisdom both embodies and inspires in a world in which his voice and vision feel as resonant as ever before. My hope is that this conversation will motivate you to think more deeply about how you can positively impact the world we all share. Dr. Zach Bush, thank you for coming on A Life of Greatness for the second time. And it's wonderful because you're actually here in person this time, which is an absolute treat. It's wonderful to be with you, Sarah. So good to be in Melbourne. 
I want to start by talking about the work you did previously when you were an endocrinologist and the way you found how the system looked at patients as a number rather than what their background was, what their history was that led them to come in and why they got sick. And I want to talk about that and why a lot of the time in the medical industry, we seem to be treating the symptoms rather than the person as a whole. Yeah, that's a big subject. And I think it was a slippery slope in the history of modern science as well as modern medicine where we became reductionist in our understanding of health instead of holistic. And that reductionist approach became more and more based on relatively abstract metrics for how our health was going. For 4,000, 5,000 years of Chinese medicine or any other traditional healing arts that would be seen in any of the shamanic work down in South America dating back 40,000 years, over in Africa dating back 100,000 years, somehow in the last couple hundred years, we really lost touch with the whole person and began to diminish our understanding of their health to a description of disease within the body. And so we would use measurements like blood pressure or blood sugar or things like this as markers for their overall health. Perhaps not understanding or realizing it, we were using markers that are far, far down the path of disorder before they start to really become abnormal. And then we try to control those factors without addressing the upstream factors or inputs that led to that condition. Something like high blood pressure or diabetes or cancer all date back decades before the actual metrics that we follow would occur. And so in our effort to quote-unquote control blood sugar, we haven't addressed the whatever happened 20 years ago in the biology. And the other piece of the puzzle that we missed was the... In this reductionist journey, we started to diminish the individual to a biologic process rather than understanding it in the context of an emotional, spiritual, psychosocial being that is energetic before it is biologic. You know, And so in this energetic state where we are quantum physics, we have this high capacity for constant change. We have this high capacity for, for taking on information around us and expressing that within ourselves. And so we're anything but a closed system. And yet this is how we study biology is in a closed loop Petri dish where we just have human cells growing in isolation, blood vessel cells or brain cells or whatever it is. And, and we start to make determinations in these reductionist models of science about how health or life occurs. And for that, we reach this you know, extraordinary you know, pendulum swing away from holism to this very split reductionist approach that has so far left nature's underpinnings that it seems reasonable to be on six drugs or 16 drugs to control for your mood, control for your blood pressure, control for your blood sugar, control for the vitality of your stomach, control for the acid production in your stomach, provide for the tone of your skin. From every organ system, we start to diminish it to like, oh, here's a pharmaceutical target that can address this. As if nature had been waiting four billion years for us to invent modern pharmaceutical technologies to manipulate it into some sort of health. And so we, we missed the four billion year journey for sure in the modern medicine uh, path. And for that, as you say, we end up treating far downstream symptoms rather than upstream causes. Mm. And for that, our outcomes are pretty horrific. And so we touch on the person as a whole in the sense of their 
spiritual connection and the trauma that they may have had in the past to do with them now coming in because they're unwell. And I wonder from your experience with a lot of the patients that you saw, and I know that you dealt with a lot of cancer patients, and why was that such a big part of their healing, knowing what they had come from? Yeah, cancer is a perfect example of that. Missing the forest for the trees thing. Cancer cell is ultimately a very advanced form of isolation at the cellular level where there's been so much damage done to the cellular connections that would make that a uniform part of your body, part of the symphony of your own biologic life. The cancer cell gets cut away from its surrounding environment until it's completely isolated. And in that isolation, it starts to accumulate a large amount of unrepaired injuries, including an enzyme function, so it can't detox well, including a genetic repair. So you start to accumulate genetic injury, which means you do less and less protein synthesis, less and less regeneration of the cells. So you get this rapidly aging, rapidly vulnerable, extremely weak cell that can no longer repair itself and doesn't realize life still exists outside of itself because it's isolated. And so there's a deep, which is this part really interests me, there's a deep innate drive for life inside every cell. And that's pretty cool. Mm. But in this situation where it doesn't realize it's part of the, uh, a chronic problem of chronic inflammation and toxicity within the body, and it just thinks it's the last semblance of life, it is holding on to the only option now to stay alive because it can't repair itself. It has to divide. And so it starts to divide, and it's a very short-lived cell. Cancer cells can die every couple days, whereas their healthy counterpart, say a liver cell that's healthy, might live for three months, six months. The cancer cell might live for one day, two days within that liver. And so the cancer cells are always dying. And that's not what your doctors tell you when they come in and say, they're like, oh my gosh, this is a super aggressive cell. It's attacking your body, all that. They don't mention this is the weakest, most vulnerable, most isolated, most lonely cell within your body. And, and we need to go poison it or kill it or do all this stuff. And so we've, we've given, I think, an inordinate amount of sense of power to this fearful diagnosis of cancer. And we've, again, forgotten why it occurred or what occurred 20 years ago. And often it's epigenetic, meaning it's actually an ancestral pattern mm. inherited through the germline or through the environment. The germline meaning your, your sperm, ovum of mom, dad, carrying this genetic information of trauma previously or... It's the environment within the womb of your mother or since you were born that has shaped this pro-cancer environment. And pro-cancer environment means something that is pushing you towards a, a rapid increase in chronic inflammation and a ra rapid toxification of the tissue in which you do this isolation injury, breaking the tight junctions, gap junctions, all these proteins that coordinate billions of cells into a single purpose by connecting them. And as you lose those connections, you start to lose self-identity at the cellular level. And then isolation, ultimately, you lose a memory of who you were. And so it used to be that there was one in four people that would get cancer, and now it's one in two. Why do you think that is? It's an acceleration of uh, the environmental injury around the human experience that has been responsible for this. It's happened in a very short amount of time, yeah. 1990s. One ninety two, we started to see a little, you know, marked uptick there, and then by two thousand one, two thousand two, we were on a near vertical, and 
now with one in two males, nearly one in two females with cancer before they die, we are seeing a, a place of very accelerated aging, essentially, and such that we're not only seeing one in two with cancer, we're seeing children with cancers that used to happen in 80-year-old people. It's not unusual to see an osteosarcoma in a child now. Osteosarcoma is what 85-year-old women used to get. So what's happening in our environment to accelerate the rate of injury such that a two-year-old is presenting with an 85-year-old disease? It's indicative of this loss of connection to the environment, loss of connection to our natural systems that would have supported or nurtured us into health. And that disconnect, unfortunately, is happening, again, epigenetically. So my mother's injuries that she would have had being born in the 1950s, in that post-World War II era, her mother was getting sprayed with DDT, as were all suburban mothers at the time, because they were trying to kill mosquitoes, because it was thought to be high risk for malaria and other conditions that, that we pointed to at the time, justified spraying all this chemical into our environment. And those grandmothers didn't really see much disease from it, but their children started to manifest a lot of disease. So we stopped spraying DDT in the late 60s, but we couldn't reverse the injury. It continued to be passed on down the line. And unfortunately, when you have these environmental toxic injuries to the genetics, it doesn't really present to its full degree of pro-cancer or pro-inflammation or pro-autoimmune until the fourth generation, at which time that injury goes not from epigenetics, but into the germline, meaning the sperm and ovum four generations out from DDT are now carrying the memory straight into that fetus of this programmed you know, trauma. I've heard you say that healing is being whole. How do we heal? Healing, bizarrely, is a process of remembering in mm. some ways. And so your cells have to remember an original identity. And the way in which that's done in a system which is actually atomic before it is cellular. So we're made out of atoms more than we're made out of cells or molecules. The molecules being based in atomic structure are extremely ethereal. And so every atom that would make up a molecule that would make up a cell is disappearing and reappearing every millionth of a second at the core level of its existence. And so the fact that a cell can show back up every millionth of a second and, and continue to show the same cancer means that its memory, its far back memory of who it used to be got erased somewhere in the mix and every millionth of a second is appearing as it was just a second ago. You know, And so the fact that you can go to sleep with cancer and wake up again with cancer means that no point in that sleep was your body able to reconnect the original information as to how it was supposed to look, what was the original template for biology. And when we see these spontaneous remissions, which is a word that we had to create in medicine because it looked too awkward to write the word miracle in the chart over and over again. And so instead of saying miraculous recovery, we say spontaneous remission. And it happens surprisingly often where somebody with stage four cancer or whatnot has been tracked for months or years with their cancer progression and then they show up for their follow-up and suddenly all the cancer is gone. But the interesting thing about most spontaneous remissions is, is you can't even find scar tissue at the places the tumors were. Mm. It was like the body somehow reverted back to this previous state that has made obsolete the entire cancer history in that individual. And I believe what's happening in those moments is the body suddenly gets reconnected to its original math. And it's simply in that next millionth of a second where it disappears and reappears, it's simply just presents the original plan, which was here's a healthy liver, you know, here's a healthy brain, whatever it is. And 
it's fascinating to me that we have so much evidence that we can go back in time like that and reconnect to some sort of original atomic structure. It's hard to understand when we're so solid looking that we are these ethereal quantum beings. It's it's hard to figure out what, what does it mean that we're atomic or quantum physics before we are biology. And maybe the easiest way to picture this, if you can picture this because it's so miraculous to even try to wrap your head around, but a baby inside the womb of a woman begins as a single cell. And then like a tumor cell, just starts to divide and copy itself. Perfect replication for the first 260 some replications. And so you turn into kind of like a snowball of identical cells. There's no differentiation. So for all intents and purposes, it's doing what a tumor does. Just copies itself and proliferates. And now suddenly around 260 replications, that perfect sphere suddenly bends or it looks like a fist punches it in on one side and turns into kind of like a lima bean shape, kind of bends and turns into an asymmetric object at that moment. And that's the first moment of quantum physics differentiation where one side expresses a different identity than the other side of the organism. And in that moment, you start to see the first structures of the body form. The hard palate is actually the first structure formed in in the fetus, which seems odd. Like you would think maybe it's the heart or maybe it's the brain or the liver or something important. But why the hard palate? The hard palate is the first thing that forms. And then the whole neurologic system forms around that, that shelf that will become the bony hard palate. And the neurologic system wraps around that and you turn into that kind of larva-looking thing. And and then over the next few weeks, you start to develop the cardiovascular system and ultimately the brain later on and things keep forming in this this beauty. But how many births have we had, you know, just for this one generation or these three generations, four generations that are on the planet right now, we have 8 billion people. The vast majority of which were born with 10 perfect toes, 10 perfect fingers, fingernails in the right location somehow all the teeth come in yeah. you know like there's miraculous stuff happening in these bodies and the body knows itself so well how does that body form from nothing into a perfect human plan yeah. every time that's the quantum reality is that at the moment of a quantum <laughs> moment of fertilization where conception occurs within that womb there's an electric grid that is present that already knows where every single cell is going to recruit to or divide to to differentiate itself to fulfill its destiny. And so within the womb of that woman is this perfect invisible electric grid that sits in the quantum realm that knows exactly what it's going to call into action. And so as those cells start to divide, one cell says, ah, I hear the call for liver, and it recruits over and, and... migrates over to the zone where the liver will be and then it suddenly differentiates into a very different cell than its neighbor that suddenly became a kidney and moved over there. And so it's following this incredible grid. And that grid is actually visible after the fetal development as well. A child is born, runs down the street at three years old, enjoying the freedom of this, or six years old, finally gets on the bike and is tearing down the hill and then falls and splits their leg wide open. And then like four days later, that yeah. leg has knit itself together and there's not even a scar. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And that gaping wound, there's nothing in it. There's no strings. There's nothing. Yeah. And yet all of those cells recreate themselves, remembering exactly where the knee should be, exactly where that skin had been is remembered. And it simply recreates itself. 
And you see extreme examples of this in nature where a lizard loses its whole tail and the tail just simply grows back to exactly the form that it had been. This is what it looks like to be a quantum physics being that's capable of constant generation and regeneration of yourself. My liver completely replaces itself every six months. I have a brand new liver every six months and it looks the same shape all the time because it simply remembers the original math in that quantum grid, the original template of life. It's tempting to think that the DNA from mom and dad somewhere carried that template. It doesn't at all. We can't even figure how a single protein comes off of that DNA to fold itself into a functional enzyme. That's one of the most miraculous things that occurs is that a long string of amino acid Legos can suddenly fold itself in these wild quaternary structures that then not only have beautiful function or structure around them, they have a functional identity that they know exactly what to do. Glutathione is this incredibly complex protein that folds into six different types of sheets and plates and curly cues and everything else and it spontaneously folds itself in the cytoplasm of a cell and then becomes this functional enzyme that looks a little like Pac-Man and it goes and gobbles up all over the body an oxidant and a reductant and every time an oxidant and reductant binds to the correct places within it, it shuts turns it into a salt ejects it to be secreted in the urine or the sweat or the breath, goes out looking again for the other super talented, super specialized function that seemingly comes out of nowhere. So whether it be the the child itself or the incredible environment of 400,000 different proteins that are copied billions of times throughout the body to let this symphony of life unfold. And in medicine, I feel like one of the reasons they must really rely on our education to be reductionist is as soon as you really start to back up and see this miracle that I'm trying to explain to you, it would be terrifying to be put in the responsibility of that, some sort of role of saying, now go fix that now. And that was basically my journey as a doctor. Well, I went out and I thought, okay, here's the top eight medications that I should use for blood pressure control. I can memorize those and I can measure blood pressure more typically, I haven't measured a blood pressure at all. And some nurse you know, or nurse assistant or somebody takes a blood pressure and an hour later they're sitting in my office. Their blood pressure is probably radically different sitting in front of me now than it was when they rushed in, had to park, and mm. dealt with all that frustration, quickly got their blood pressure checked, and now they're here. They probably have normal blood pressure now, but I'm going to treat the one when they were running around and came running to the clinic. And, and to instead be told a magical being is going to walk into your office, they are a light being that's quantum physics rate is going to be rebirthing itself every millionth of a second. And your job is to return it to its original state of mass so that it will express the perfect body that is an expression of an eons old light being that's vibrating at such a rate that it knows self all the time and it remembers not only, well, only what's happened in its lifetime but all things that have ever happened in the universe now good good luck you know and so it's overwhelming as i started to really get into the reality of life of how this is not what i was equipped to be a part of this was not what i was equipped to micromanage and so as my awe has continued to increase of the human being but even deeper than that, the, the phenomenon of life itself at any level, an oak tree, a uh, field of wildflowers, the floor of the ocean. It's so overwhelmingly complex, overwhelmingly beautiful that we equip a farmer with a bunch of chemicals to say, hey, go grow food to feed humans. It's ludicrous that we train a physician from the same chemical companies that are 
building the the arsenal for the farmer to kill everything. Here, here, doc. Here's a bunch of antibiotics and anti-cancer compounds and everything else. Antidepressants. Here's anti-everything. Go, go, kill everything that's not good, and we'll hope that something good emerges from that. You know, and so that's it, it's a there's a very obvious and in the end not surprising state of affairs that we have today is that modern medicine has overseen the most rapid acceleration of death and disease that we could have ever imagined from the most unnatural of diseases managed by the most unnatural of chemicals and surgical interventions and everything else. And so we find this state of loneliness as a species now where we have so pushed back nature from our life that we are dying and dying at an accelerated rate that we could not have imagined just a couple of decades ago. I was having a conversation with someone the other day, this wonderful man in India who is quite a I don't like using the word guru, but he is a, of that elk. And he works a lot in the Vedic tradition. And he does a lot of readings when they get your birth time and all that kind of stuff. He's amazing. And I said to him, is the time of death always set? And he says, very, very rarely is it. From a chart, I can see the potential of someone to maybe pass, but... If they do the right things and heal themselves, then that chart will completely change. And eventually, obviously, we'll have to die. That's a no-brainer. But what it kind of made me think a bit about the work that you're doing is that if we're given the information and we're enabled to be able to prolong our life in a healthy way, not prolong it that we're sick, then that would stop a lot of people from dying having spent a lot of time in palliative care, what was your experience with that? Mm. I, I guess I've developed a bit of a dualistic belief system or awareness around this situation and that uh, part of me understands that no soul leaves without purpose. You know? yeah. No soul leaves at a time that was undetermined beforehand. And I'm not sure that it's the stars that predict that. I'm not sure that the stars predict our entrance. We enter when we enter. The stars then have an impact on us because we're ultimately columns of water. And so as a column of water, just like the tides of the ocean, I'm heavily affected by the position of the sun, the moon, the stars mm. at the moment of my first breath. And so not surprisingly, you know, I think that we could chart it back to conception rather than moment of birth. Moment of birth is where astrologers love to to hang it on, and I think there is a very significant energetic event that happens mm. in that moment, and we've actually seen this in clinic. Um, a pretty extraordinary camera was developed in Russia that images indirectly the human energy field, and it's fascinating to watch a woman in labor when suddenly this other energy field becomes visible around her as the infant is descending into the vaginal canal. You can't see that energy field of the of the other being when it's in the womb. And I find that interesting. The womb is like some sort of energetic holy of holies, like nothing enters and nothing exits in the same way that once it leaves that space and enters the, the vaginal canal, the birth canal, it can suddenly be seen by the outside world. Its energy field suddenly leaps out. And so it's not surprising to me that that minute of birth is significant on you energetically and that if you're born at 1.50 p.m. versus 2.30 p.m., there's a slight difference in your astrology, whether it's Vedic or Western, or whatever you're using there. 
but I'm not sure that the stars could have predicted your entrance. They have an influence on it. And so in that way, an astrologer can see your chart and be like, okay, there's vulnerabilities that are going to happen in the chart here based on moment of your birth and how those stars arrange at that moment. But you can change that course by changing your energy and relationship to those stars. The other side of me likes to think that we can reinvent ourselves and thoroughly change the course of everything. And so I think I have to hold on to both of those possibilities all the time for myself as well as my patients or whatnot is this balance between determinism and and free will at the soul level, you know. And I don't know that any of us will know the answer to that. And I think that it's this wonderful mystery of being born into a finite mind or a finite experience when we're all infinite beings. Energy can neither be created or destroyed is the first law of thermodynamics and physics. And so this energy that animates me is age old since the origin of energy within the universe, you know. And so to think that I am limited to my human experience is ludicrous. I obviously have a vast energetic experience that's not limited to this 78-year average lifespan that a human will step into right now. And for that, I think that there's a possibility that I can connect and reconnect in different ways to that infinite energy source to express my highest calling. And we're all influencing one another, which is interesting. Mm. And so while I may be on a, a specific trajectory right now for my highest path, the constellations of beings around me may suddenly shift that and I may take on a different energetic sense of purpose or path. And for anybody who's done decades of work in the energy world, you can see, point to these moments where there's a sudden shift in, in your matrix there. And I'm constantly intrigued by that. Mm. I'm intrigued by people who will stay in a coma for 15 years with no measurable brain activity and then suddenly wake up mm. and live decades in a healthy body those things have happened it's bizarre and it doesn't make sense until you start to really i think surrender to the possibility that it's both absolutely that idea of knowing that we have free will makes life so great because then it matters what we do it matters how we treat ourselves how we think about ourselves and i wanted to touch on that because i know that you talk about letting go of your past and and really being in the present moment and being here now, not being here with that baggage. And I wanted to know about your own personal experiences. Everyone has some sort of trauma in their life and I know that you have experienced some as well and I wonder how have you moved past that? I think that's some of the early childhood stuff you don't necessarily remember until later on in life. Mm. You repress these things to some degree. And I had a pretty benign childhood and, and was surrounded by loving parents and loving community and grew up in a great town that was safe. And so my level of trauma is scarce in this lifetime compared to many around me. But the the moments of trauma that occurred were repressed for a long time until I was ready to heal those things. I didn't really feel that way. It's like the traumas will be brought to light by our higher self or by the universe or by your mind, whatever you want to think of it as, when we're ready to address it. And I kind of find that very graceful way that 
neurology works or our memory works. Memory is arguably not really neurologic, but the ways in which memories occur in the body and then are released or, or processed or metabolized through the body happen in their time and in their right time, I think. And for me, they came through in a, at times when I was surrounded by people who were encouraging me to let go of my former identities and to take on a bigger definition of self and let go of metrics of failure or success that the world had handed me and be willing to feel into a deeper value of myself. And that's typically where, where these things come up as soon as you're willing to just pull back one little onion skin of your own potential and your own appreciation of self it will uncover one of these things. And so when you discover trauma in your life or you remember trauma in your life, uh, it's important to recognize it as a success already because you got mature enough, you got enough resources put around you to allow you to heal that in that Mm. moment. And so anytime these come to light, it's a a celebration or should be a celebration. And too often we, we surround each other with this empathy. Oh my God, that's so horrible that happened to you like oh my god you have cancer and so most my patients with cancer never wanted to tell anybody because they couldn't stand the reaction of everybody right and so it's like yeah like oh that 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 little moment of i'm so sorry it's like that oh this is my transformation i've been diagnosed with this and i'm changing everything and i am newly empowered to be a more complete version of myself this was a symptom of me being disconnected from self i'm so grateful that this thing happened so that i can finally get out of the situations i've been in that have been diminishing my power diminishing my vibrational coherence as a light being I'm so grateful, and that's typically what you'll hear in an integrative clinic or whatever. Year in, two years into the cancer journey, people always say, oh my God, this was the best thing that ever happened to me because look at me now. I would have never become this person if there had been no scare or no fright to to change everything. And so we should really learn whenever somebody says that something big is happening in their lives. I got diagnosed with something. I'm getting a divorce. I had a child die. These things are transformational events. And so when something happens, it's good to come along and say, I am witness to this moment in your life, and it is powerful. This is a potent moment you're in. And I can feel the heartbreak and the tragedy in it, but I can also feel that you know, momentous opportunity that you have to grow and expand and heal something deep within you for what you've called into your life in this moment. It's just like, whoa. You called this in. That's amazing. You wanted this journey to give some new light, some new trajectory, some new door opening to become something you've never been before and wouldn't have been inspired to transform into it. This not happened to you. That's the attitude we would love for humanity to start to adopt of everything that we call in, traumatic or otherwise, is our path asking us or giving us the opportunity Mm. do you want to become something new do you want to transform in our last interview I remember you mentioned that you had separated with your wife were you able to use what you said to be able to move through that and to rise again yeah, yeah. My so I've been through two divorces in my life, and they were both beautiful openings. And those two people are really important to me. They're really extraordinary women. And the first I was with for twenty years, and we got married young. And 
had two extraordinary children that grew up with us in our homes and we built homes together we built gardens together we built so much beauty and we got to see each other grow into beautiful beings but over 20 years our paths pretty radically diverged because who who could have guessed where our paths would lead when we met when we were 20 years old and so we had this awesome journey where in some ways we allowed one another to parent ourselves into our best versions of ourselves uh, over that 20-year period. Certainly we saw children into the world, but I think those kids are parenting themselves into their future now. They're in, both in their 20s and thriving and and have gone on paths that I could have never designed for them. Khalil Gibran says something amazing 100 years ago when he was asked about parenting. And this is in the book, The Prophet, this is written, but he's asked, how should we parent? And he says, you should always strive to think like your child, but make sure never to train your child to think like you. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so, it's so true. And, and so it's a reminder for the child to be allowed to be in their miraculous zone of purpose and self-actualization. And it's really sad to me that those two divorces were seen as failures in the eyes of parents right. or extended family or whatever it is. Because they were my greatest achievements. Both divorces were were these moments of recognition of there's a sovereign being that I love deeply. And the path that I'm taking will take them out of their, their highest path, will take them into a zone where they're sacrificing their higher self to try to stay in commitment. Or I will bend myself into their journey and try to come alongside them at the cost of my own joy and my own sovereign path of purpose where I'm going to step into my my transformational energy that I, I came into this world with. They were my greatest successes were those two you know, relationships and every stage of them were my greatest accomplishments. The falling in love. We should always be falling in love again. No matter how hard your heart has been broken and that's what I told my kids mm, after my second quote. divorce. Yeah. I just told my kids just keep doing it. Like keep fall in love keep doing the love thing it doesn't matter if it seems insane keep opening yourself up to the world to be loved and practice doing that again and again and today I don't know if I'm any better than I ever was at being loved I, I feel a lot more comfort as most of us do witnessing the beauty in others and, and channeling love towards them than actually experiencing it within ourselves and in this moment, I'm recognizing that to be loved is actually not so much to receive from somebody else, but for somebody else to witness so much beauty in you that ignites inside yeah. of yourself the love. Yeah. So it's not that being in love actually sends a love vibration into you from me. That's not it. Instead, if somebody sees you, sees your beauty, it's going to ignite in you the vibration of love because you have been witnessed. And we can see this in atomic physics, which is fascinating. And every time an atom is actually seen, it switches its spin. And so the electric spin around an atom, they call it the observer effect. As soon as you're seen, you do the opposite thing. And so there's something to that having been seen phenomenon where it changes everything inside of you. And it's going to ignite in you something eternal, something really regenerational. And regenerational is an interesting concept that it will regenerate the biology, but regenerational stating that I can remember back beyond the traumas of my parents and I can reinvent the generational patterns going forward if I'm loved, if I am actually seen. 
And again, it's not that love coming from the other person. It's love that is ignited within me when I'm witnessed. And so that journey, I think, needs us to realize that every single relationship we're in is the highest calling in so many ways. It is to be witness to one another is why we're here on the planet. And we're certainly here to be witness to nature. And we are the most complex ecosystem ever devised in biology. A human biology holds within it more ecology, more species, and more extraordinary interweaving of those species to express the high level of intelligence we have. That doesn't come from a human brain. It comes from a gut full of 40,000 species that are typing on trillions of small neurons in my gut, giving information to my central processing unit here to find patterns in nature. That's what it means to be human. I'm a huge central processing unit chip to take in all the information of nature around me and within me to see the patterns of beauty, to see the sunset, to see the sunrise, to feel the vibration in the water from a blue whale that's singing 5,000 miles away. These are things that are coming through my sensory complex that I may or may not be aware of, but I'm sensing so much more than the eye would capture. And for that, I am alive. For that, I see patterns in nature and I can make deduction and I can have curiosity and I can have imagination and I can be creative force. I can create art. I can create music. I can create fire. We're the only species that creates art, music, fire. Mm. No other species has ever done it. What does that mean about us? It means we are the most perfected circuit board for information from the entire environment that we've seen on the planet so far. And so I'm excited by who we are, 200,000 years of expression of this thing that we call human in a 4 billion year history of a planet in a 14 billion year universe. We're in this finite moment, this tiny little pixel of time that is expressing some incredible beauty. And so I would invite everybody to see their relationships in the context of that. Mm. We are infinite, but we are expressing a finite beauty. And our relationships are all specifically designed specifically designed to bring us to our highest version of ourselves and ultimately i think we are in the pursuit of the realization that we are complete within ourselves Mm. and this is where i think marriage has an opportunity to really take on a whole new identity in our current constructs the current construct of marriage was actually developed around the purpose of property and ownership and wealth transfer And sadly, I think it it puts us in a position to believe that we own the other person. We own that place next to them. And so that deep state of ownership is a codependence that's codified in the thing that we call marriage. And the Course in Miracles has been very revealing to the world since the 1960s over a new perspective on that marriage construct, Mm -hmm. perhaps. But it's been voiced in a lot of other texts and wisdom keepers as well. But It looks at this phenomenon where two split minds that have an ego that has split it for its own protection perhaps because it believes itself to be vulnerable because it's separate from nature. So our original wound, I guess before you even get to marriage, the original wound is that of abandonment. We believe we've been abandoned by nature and our God. And so we have to get ourselves back to out of our sinful nature or out of our broken nature or out of our incomplete nature. We're struggling back and trying to find external things to do to get ourselves complete and make ourselves feel better at least. And so marriage comes along and there's two split minds that are trying to complete one whole mind. 
And in that codependence, they have to agree that there are two split minds that with dueling egos with ultimately different agendas that are going to try to solve for this, which means you have to agree to be in constant argument or, or conflict with one another because those two minds cannot actually resolve themselves because the whole thought is it, neither can be complete. So you have to come together to have some version of a whole. And in their constant state of incompleteness, they will never be stable enough to actually reflect back at the other, the real beauty within them. And so we get an increasing tension between those two halves. And as you go down that list of what's called special relationship of the two egoic minds, marriage is you have to agree on pain, suffering, and ultimately death, as well as those tortured egos and dueling, because you're both trying to complete each other in the other. The solution that the Course of Miracle kind of outlines is each individual actually needs to complete themselves directly to source. Mm. The masculine and the feminine within each, and that's not gender, that's an energy, right? So there's a masculine energy which holds space. It holds space to find time-gravity relationships, all of this. And then there's the feminine, which is the flow state through that structure. And so each of us have the masculine and feminine of holding space and flowing creative energy through it. And until we realize that we can get absolutely everything from source, which is maybe just to say higher self, whatever this energy center is that animates my body, obviously knows the complete yin-yang, or else my liver would have never ended up at the liver. My kidneys would have never defined kidneys. And so I have the perfect structure, the matrix, the masculine within me, and I flow the energy of creation through that, and I manifest a body every millionth of a second. And so I am complete at the physics level. It's in this human mind and psycho-spiritual state that I believe myself to be separate from nature, that I believe myself to be incomplete or split, and therefore need another to complete myself. That's the danger in the current model of marriage that we have is we, of course, a miracle says it very simply, a special relationship is one in which you will see in the other person a trait that you don't think you can get from source. Mm. And you'll cleave unto that trait until you have sucked it out of the person and then you will leave, period. That's a dark message, right? And as soon as I read that, I had sadness deep within me because I could recognize in both the relationships that I've had, you know, a total of 24 years of relationship or something, in those long relationships, I know which of the traits that I saw in both those women that I thought that I lacked and so much wanted to experience through the other. And the reason I could identify them so quickly is because I had seen those lights go out in those individuals over the course of those marriages. I could immediately feel what they had clung to in me. And I knew that that trait had been diminished in the marriages that had been drained out of me. And so the end of my last marriage was the realization was, oh my God, I love this person so much. And I can see all of her beauty and I have drained from her the the most the highest traits that made her her the ones that all of her friends twelve hundred around the world loved so deeply, I diminished those by this contract that said she would receive everything from me, that she would complete herself in this little relationship of two people rather than all that she had received for forty years from the global community that she had built, and as soon as we resolve that construct. She goes back to receiving from the world, and I see her as a more joyful person without me than with me mm. because I couldn't get myself in a place where I could give her the freedom in relationship. And so that's my brokenness that that limited that. That was my effort to cleave unto her in a way. And we do this to one another all the time. Mm. And it's only that extraordinary 
word unconditional <laughs> that we find our path into love. What does unconditional love look like? And I'm just, I feel a deep sorrow for everybody in relationship who are unconsciously put into a construct of, of extreme conditional states. Friendship is so unconditional, mm. right? Like my friends that I grew up with, I see them in Colorado when I pop back there. And the beauty that's there mm. in my friendship, we could not have gone on more different paths in our lives. And yet when we get together within half an hour, we've clicked back yeah. into that original vibration. We're cracking up and remembering stories from childhood. And there's absolutely no judgment on each other's journey. Like who cares, whatever. We're just, we're just best friends after 45 years. That's amazing that you can do that. So why is that unconditional? And yet you go and find the person that you love and you commit to yeah. and there's a thousand conditions or 10,000 conditions mm. on that relationship that lead to, to structures of it. And so the women that I've been married to in my life are the greatest gifts of my life. These are the brightest beings that I've come in contact with. And I was handed a model of relationship that diminished all of us in the, in the effort to fulfill this highly conditional state, this highly conditional contract. And I am enjoying loving those two women outside of that mm. construct. I'm enjoying watching them thrive. I'm enjoying them painting a, a future that's so bright for both of them. And they continue to choose paths that just are awesome to, to witness. And they exhibit so much beauty. And I'm in so much awe of both of them. And I'm in awe of myself for the beauty that I get to express too. And I feel that I'm a better partner, if, if that word's even relevant to them as a friend than I ever was mm. as a spouse in some ways. Because uh, I've moved from a conditional state of loving them to an unconditional state of being. And I was too doing in my relationships. And I know I did great harm with that effort to do love and when you do love, it looks a lot like duty and responsibility. And there's a deep you know, sense of inadequacy when you try to do love that way because there's ultimately no way that I can fix somebody else's path or I can hmm. make them truly comfortable or make them truly fulfilled. It's a vacuum you cannot fill if you think you are source. And if the relationship has put you into a construct of expectation that you're the source for their sense of adventure, their their romance, their financial development, their professional path, their spiritual development. Like, how do we possibly think we can do that for yes. one another? And so I just really regret having diminished them to the point of me trying to do love to them. And I love them so much. I'm sitting here just almost overwhelmed by just the knowingness of both these women. They're just so extraordinary and I just have a deep hope they can both feel me right now because it's, it's much more than I was able to give them in marriage for sure. I think they were very lucky to have you, Zach Bush. <laughs> and the way that you talk about them now, I would hope someone would talk about me like that. Since then, how have you found unconditional love? The only place that I, it can really manifest is within ourselves. I'm on a journey of surrendering all the external cues of love, all the external definitions of it and constructs of it, you know. And you have to die to yourself constantly. You have to die to the environment constantly to do this because it's, man, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever done. 
I'm on a daily basis over the last couple of years terrified of myself and the things that I'm willing to let go of. I've done a surrender state that has led me to make decisions that at any other point in my life I would have defined it as, well, that's selfish or you're an asshole for doing this or that or you're whatever words you can negatively think of I've thought of myself in these last couple of years as I've started to let go of these old definitions of of successful or unsuccessful me or whatever it is. And, and every time that I start to feel love outside of myself, to surrender that and reminder that I'm masking or palliating a failure for myself to complete with source is constant challenge. It's a constant challenge. I, I live a relatively public life. I speak all the time and you know, you're on social media. Like the, the world's always curious about what you're doing or whatever it is. And man, there's this, there's this constant opportunity for me to connect to any of that and find self-validation in mm. comments on my social mm. media feed or whatever it is. And for that reason, I haven't looked at my social media feed for months and I have staff that help me communicate with the world without me having to look at that stuff because it's such a trap. It's, it's such a trap for me to immediately cling on to a positive thing or immediately self-deprecate with a negative thing or whatever's being said out there, which immediately, anytime I touch it, diminishes my sense of core self and the unconditional love I'm in pursuit of is coherent vibration with my highest self, coherent vibration within my being that brings me into a state of nature that is jaw-droppingly beautiful. Perhaps for other people seeing glimpses of that, but they'll never be able to see me because when we look at each other, we just see a mirror and see something of ourselves. So if somebody looks at me and they think they see something of beauty, they're just seeing themselves. And so ultimately we can only really truly experience the complete beauty of ourselves within ourselves. It is my being that can only be witness to my being. And my goal at this point in my life is to become so coherent that I become that perfect crystalline mirror to all those around me by diminishing the amount of codependent grabs mm. that I would do out to them, whether it be a comment on social media or somebody trying to love me or whatever it is. Can I become so crystalline? in my own sense of vibrational beauty, in my own sense of this core self that's emanating and expressing biology as well as a psychophysiology, as well as psychospirituality, can I get so crystal clear that the whole world, if they were to look at me, would only see their own beauty and in that moment fall in love with themselves and in that moment the true unconditional state of love would be witnessed. For all of that, my God, that's, that's all that's left to be worth living for from my standpoint. There's certainly no bank account to work towards. There's certainly no corporate success or nonprofit success or whatever it is. Save the planet. Like, planet's absolutely fine. Planet has gone through six extinctions. It becomes more beautiful every single time. Planet is absolutely fine. Nature, not depending on humanity to do its beauty. Thank God. Why are we here? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God we weren't responsible for the fabric of the universe. And so why are we here? If there's any purpose, it is for me to be a more crystalline structure so that the women that I have loved would know that, so the children that I love would see themselves more completely and less as a abstract conglomeration of myself and their mother and whatever it is. Like We're so close. 
I really think this, Sarah, like, I think we are so close to a massive transformation as a species. And we've needed the extremity of the last 50 years where we have accelerated the rate of extinction by 10,000 times, where we have destroyed 97% of soils on the earth. We've contaminated 97% of waterways of the planet. We've melted ice caps. We've destroyed species. We've, we needed that whole damn journey to get to this point where we are so close now to realizing we cannot for a moment look outside of ourselves for the completion of self for the completion of the true state of being that we're so coherent that we simply become fractals of a beautiful nature that are trying to express the highest level of intelligence and therefore pattern recognition within the universe through our neurologic systems through our psycho spiritual psychosocial lens nature is presenting itself to be seen and I'm watching it happen all over the planet now in the bush of South Africa to you know tiny little tribes in deep in Ecuador, rainforests to you know the urban environments of Melbourne or Los Angeles or New York or any place you touch into right now. The last two years especially have been this veil lifting and people being like, oh my gosh, what were we doing? Mm. And so we've seen more relationships change in the last two years than at any time in human history. There were more divorces. There was more new versions of relationship, you know, explosion of things like polyamory and all kinds of things that I think are just chasing after the wind with all these verbiages and definitions and all these things. What we're feeling is an unveiling of this, our own realization of beauty within us. We've seen so many women empowered in these last two years stepping up. Uh, the women of Iran, God bless mm. this beautiful uh, insurgence and revolution happening in the streets as they walk out without the job, without the coverings, and just present their beauty mm. to their culture and say, enough is enough. We are no longer going to be repressed. This is us. We are beautiful. We are powerful. We are here to be. And if we walk into machine gun fire to our own death, so be it, because I'm beautiful and I will be seen in this moment. That didn't happen 10 years ago. That didn't happen 10 months ago it happened now and these women are igniting something for the beauty that they feel within themselves the children that are starting to stand up and demand a different future of their parents for their parents to correct the family behavior such that they come into line with an understanding of the damage to nature that we're doing come into line with the sense of disconnect of our own education systems. Children are rejecting the education system at a rate we've never seen before. Children are unwilling to get their driver's license. This is like unheard of in America. That's what we did. Mm. We all counted the days until our 15 and a half birthday where we could get our driver's permit and then our 16th birthday to get the license. Now people are like, yeah, I don't think I ever need a driver's license. What about your freedom? What is your? They are tapping into a sense of freedom and self-identity that goes so much beyond a driver's license, you know. And then watching the whole phenomena of gender identity mm. and then sexual identity beyond that, these are new territories that my grandparents and great-grandparents could not have imagined the ease at which these children are defining their path, are defining a deep sense of self that goes far beyond the contract of a marriage, goes far beyond the metric of success of having a girlfriend or a boyfriend or goes far beyond identifying as a female or a male or being sexually attracted to a male or female. It says, I am. And when a generation starts to do that, it's frightening to the old paradigms. It's terrifying for you know parents and stuff. Well, what's going to happen to my kids or whatever? 
if you can surrender your own metrics of success and failure and feel into your children's generation, they are being far more successful than we could ever imagine. And they might look depressed and lacking drive and autistic and attention deficit and sleep disordered, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, infertility. This is what our children are experiencing biologically right now, but it's because they're in the midst of the cocoon. When that caterpillar completely turns to mush, the mother caterpillar must be super disappointed. Kids just go into hell, and then the freaking thing emerges as a butterfly. We are going to go crystalline soon. We're going to become something we've never been before. And it's been long prophesied by many indigenous cultures that in these decades, 2012 to 2032, in these two decades, the Mayan calendar ends in 2012, the 2017 to 2027 decade is long pointed to. So we're in the middle of these couple of decades where everything melts so that it can align with a memory of the energetic field that the human has never experienced before. We're about to step into an extraterrestrial, if you will, something greater than Earth vibration. Right now, we've been defined in our biology by Earth, its vibrations, and we've had gentle input from the stars and the moons and everything else going on in our astrology. But but I believe we're about to reach a, a change in our water structure, if you will. And the water within human cells or within any biology is very different than liquid water. It's in this weird liquid crystal state. And the liquid crystal of this water within our cells coats the genetic sequences within us, the DNA strands. And in that marriage of DNA with its water, it becomes a perfect antenna. In my perfect antenna within 70 trillion human cells, I have the ability to receive a source of information that is me, a specific station that's vibrating in the universe that is Zach. You have a specific vibration in you that is different and received differently for the nuances of the DNA that you've received from all of your nature, not just from mom and dad, but all the genetics from all the viruses you've ever been exposed to, all the microbial input. And so that genetic self has created a very unique antenna such that your identity is received all the time. And not once have you woken up thinking you're Zach, which is a big relief to you. But, <laughs> but there is this possibility that we are going to keep keep in this orbit for a very good long time of a higher expression of what our genetics are composed of because we have so thoroughly erased the memory of the water uh, previously. And the chemical I, I observed the most in, in our lab is glyphosate, which is the most abundant chemical on the planet, really. We pour 4 billion pounds, which is a very difficult number for you in the metric world. is a couple of billion kilograms of this chemical glyphosate, which is the most abundant herbicide on the planet, weed killer, but it's also the most abundant crop treatment as a desiccant drying agent for wheat and soybeans and legumes and all this stuff. It's also the most abundant antibiotic on the planet, and it screws up water structure wherever it touches water, and it is a water-soluble toxin. And when you screw up the structure of water, you lose memory because ultimately memory of the planet, memory of my, my own experience is held within my water structure, not in my neurology. There is no part of the brain that stores memory, which is pretty bizarre. But we store that instead in our peripheral water in what's probably called a myofascial network. It looks kind of like three-dimensional spider webs underneath our skin and it holds water in a very unique 
environment. And for that, as well as these liquid crystals within every cell, we have a memory bank of the water. And then we add a toxin that suddenly erases memory. The downside is in that moment of loss of memory of these last couple decades, we've lost track of our ancestral truth. We've lost sense of our sense of home. We all feel like extraterrestrials walking around here. We're like, we can't come from here. I can't come from here. I look at other people. I look at the news. I look at, this does not feel like home. It was because my water has gone through a, a complete erasure from the amount of chemicals I've seen that have screwed up my original water. So I can't remember where I come from. You add on top of that, or you add to that social behavior, and I think, and the march of colonialism, we are expressing a loss of sense of home. Mm. The fact that we, at some point, decide we can own a piece of land and everything within it, that, that's a deep loss of, of memory of where we come from and who we are. And so the colonial mind, I think, is the result of a loss of memory. And when we tie into indigenous wisdom, we get to feel the remembrance of where we all come from. And this is why I think everybody ultimately needs to, at some point in their lives, intention, if not physically getting to Africa, tune into the vibration of your African within you. We all come from the Rift Valley. Like This is where all biodiversity from the whole planet sprung forth from. An incredible line that runs you know, through Ethiopia up to Egypt and south down into the, the coast of South Africa. That incredible line is where all biology leapt out of and humanity leapt out of that a couple hundred thousand years ago. And that's the original vibration of where we come from. And sometimes when you step back into that geologic field, you get that remembrance of, oh my gosh. Or for me, watching a sunset in Africa for the first time in August, which creates these absolutely spectacular sunsets. Seeing that first African sunset set into motion so many tears and so many deep states of forgiveness and resolution within me, realizing that I've been behaving as if I was alien to this planet since I was here because I could not remember where I came from. And in that moment, I suddenly felt what it felt like to be from Earth and realized I am indigenous to this planet. Every single person on this planet is indigenous to this planet. And there's an opportunity for us to, if uh, if perhaps unable to connect to that old memory for all of the chemical poisoning we've done, we have an opportunity to, to set down stakes now and say we're going to purify the water structure of humanity now through an understanding of soil mechanics, water mechanics, the carbon cycle, the water cycle. And we're going to ask for a deep forgiveness from Mother Earth such that we would begin a new memory so that we could have an opportunity for a new narrative of what it means to be human, a new story. And that's going to change a lot of relationships. Mm. And I hope that every relationship, no matter whether it stays within the construct of marriage or transforms out of that, um, is able to blow the doors off that and go to something more or expand that box so much that it has plenty of room for growth. Whatever ways people reinvent these constructs of marriage, please, everybody, let's love each other unconditionally and let's see the beauty within each of us and let's start to tie into the possibility of a new story of what it means to be human. I wanted to talk about surrendering because you brought it up before and I think it's interesting when people like yourself are doing such good work and I see it time and again where the media starts bringing them down. Joe Dispenza talks about it openly and obviously I've seen that you've had your criticisms and I, I know you touched on that you don't look at it much, but at the same time, you can't help but have it somehow affect you a little bit. 
Is somebody I, saying something bad about me? <laughs> no, I think you're the best. And maybe that outweighs the love that you have from so many. Why do you think the media firstly does that with so many of our great thought leaders that talk about changing the world and do so much good? And how do you deal with that? Just not pay attention to it, I guess, is one approach. And then if you are going to notice it or somebody puts it in front of you, you can just acknowledge that, yeah, that, that's normal human behavior. It's not personal that people want to resist information of any source. If it's not fitting their narrative, then they're going to create resistance. And the more adamant that resistance is to being itself and not listening, that's symptomatic, I think, of maybe an old paradigm resisting change, you know. And so, I, and I can see that in myself. I, I can do both each day. I can hold rigidly to my dogma and I can be open to new things. And I think my spirit is capable of doing both nearly simultaneously. I'm extremely dogmatic in, in my sense of self-value, for sure. The amount of chipping away I have to slowly do to allow myself to value myself outside of my old metrics of success or failure is a decades-old effort. You know, it just it's keeps amazing me at the entrenched belief systems within me. And so is it surprising that the media as an expression of an old system mm. is resistant to change? This is the characteristic of an egoic mind is that of resistance to change. <laughs> One that resists change is stuck in an egoic model. And that can be an individual, it can be a belief within that individual, or it can be an entire society as we've seen expressed in these last couple of years. But that being, earthworm, human, dog, or otherwise, that resists change is demonstrating a divorce from reality of nature. The only thing that nature is committed to is constant transformation. Nature would be appalled with the, the belief that the cells of today, whether they be a tree, a human, or otherwise, are going to express the same life in a billion years that they do today. Mm. Nature refuses that. Only thing that nature wants is constant curiosity, constant creativity, and therefore constant death to self, constant transformation. That's what this world has been doing for four billion years. It has never rested on its laurels and said, well, we accomplished Triceratops. That was pretty cool. Let's just stay there. The moment some new beauty is discovered, it's already in its decay. It's already starting to transform into its next energetic expression. And that includes our birth. The moment we are knit together in the womb, we begin an aging process to give up these bodies, to release our energy fields into something much greater than human. And I'm far down that path. Mm. You know, I'm five decades done. Like, okay, what does that mean? It means that my biology is preparing for a diversification. An oak tree has such a simple and beautiful genetic code. And you can sequence that, that tree at its you know, 150th year and it's perfectly oak. And then it falls in its 150th year to the forest floor. Big windstorm comes through or whatnot and knocks it to the earth. And you genetically sequence that trunk one year later and it has 100,000 species within it. One species gives life to 100,000 species. I am preparing to give life far greater and far more diverse than this human body could possibly express. And I hope that in the next 
50 years if I'm lucky to live like my ancestors have. If I can hit that 100-year mark, I hope my next 50 is in a constant state of such radical change that nobody would recognize me from one decade to the next because I have just been in a constant pursuit of transformation and increasing willingness to let go of everything I held as my metrics of success yesterday would be let go of and I would look for a new definition of self tomorrow. I hope that I become far more being than I am doing and I hope that the world starts to feel my state of being love rather than trying to run around doing love and I hope that the women that I have loved, the children that I love, man, I just, I can't overexpress the beauty that could come out of this for all of us if we are able to feel our state of being rather than looking to the acts of the doing to define the love that we feel for one another. I have a whole world that I've fallen in love with now and I had to let go of the previous metrics of successful marriage or successful Zach or whatever it is to really start to lean into the possibility of can I see beauty in everything and will I allow the beauty of everything to see me? And... uh I don't encourage anybody else to do my path at this point. I don't, I don't even know what it ends up. I have no idea. And I'm so happy for people that are finding their f- complete fulfillment and vibration in the relationships they're in right now. And I want that for anybody I've ever loved or tried to love or love right now. Is like, man, may all of the best come into your life to show you the highest beauty within yourself. And for that, what how can a media's opinion of myself have any bearing? I mean, I'm amazed that anybody answers the phone when I call. I'm I'm amazed that anybody (laughs) calls me and says, Zach, will you talk again? I'm like, my God, the world wants more of my talking. Like, how is that possible? If people keep inviting me to speak, it's because I'm getting better at leaving space between my words and leaving a trace of vibration between my thoughts that allow people to see themselves more clearly because who I am today and whatever failures people want to point to or whatever crazy or quacky things I believe or that's not why the world's tuning in. The world will keep tuning in to not just me but anybody speaking their truth because in that truth we start to feel real and we start to manifest a reality that simply has not occurred on this planet yet. And we must be being pushed towards that because the extinction is nigh. We have one in three males infertile by a sperm count. We have you know, one in three women infertile by a whole host of conditions, including polycystic ovarian syndrome and the rest. So our end of fertility, our end of procreation as a species is just a few decades out. And so the end comes near. So we're on our hospice moment. And so I guess the last question we have really as a human species is will we have a spontaneous remission? Mm. Will we spontaneously remit from the accumulated trauma and our own self-prescribed, self-described failures and limitations? Somebody wants to look through the lens of human beliefs as to my life. I'm just a whole set of failures from start to finish. And as a disaster, I'm a disaster in relationships, I'm a disaster as a parent, I'm a disaster as a doctor, I'm a disaster as a human being. But if you start to feel into the spiritual potential, I believe I have been a great success in becoming more me.
And that's, that makes me feel okay living in my skin when I wake up in the morning. And for a lot of decades, I didn't feel very good being in my skin. I felt this crawling underneath this sense of anxiety that I wasn't enough or I wasn't doing the right thing or I wasn't being enough to the people around me. And I'm just so grateful in the mornings that I wake up on a pillow and just hear the silence around me and then hear the birds singing outside and feel the the draft of a breeze come through the room and and I feel it on my skin and I know I'm alive and I know I'm awake and I feel good in that skin and I feel good being me that day. And that's just, there's nobody who can take that away. Mm. And um, the only person that can diminish who I am or how I feel about myself now is me. Mm. And anytime I blame somebody else for some negative sensation within myself, then I'm just distracting myself from a deeper truth that it's all from within. And so I can point to social media. It's super convenient to have all that out there because if I start to feel bad at myself, I can just simply turn on the news or go look at my social media feed or Google my own name to see how many people think I'm crazy and whacked out and an asshole or whatever they want to call me. And then I can justify the way I feel inside myself from something external. But the fact is, you know, those are just Band-Aids on my egoic sense of reality when I choose to go there. But that's becoming less and less common, fortunately, for me now. And I'm enjoying the process of continuing to dissolve in this cocoon of humanity as we move towards our rebirth here. What have you found in the being in the silence? Some distance above me is an original sacred geometry that is an energy field and it becomes more and more palpable as I have gotten older and as, as I've gotten free of some of my stuff and still carry a lot of baggage I'm sure but I get to know this thing more and more and it's a it's something that is so much larger than my biology it's so much more coherent than any thought I could have or any philosophy I could put together or any scientific theory I could met out this thing is so complete it's certainly not looking for any human relationship to complete itself. It's certainly not looking for any human accomplishment. It's certainly not waiting for a bank account to fill up with dollars. It's certainly not looking for a curriculum vitae to impress those around me. This thing is so, so innate and also so intricate in its beauty. It's a billion facets and it has been here since the origin of time and at this moment it has chosen to express itself as a human life and I feel incredibly grateful to be a finite expression of an infinite source of energy that is one of the eight billion energy centers that now burn brightly on this planet to bring some sort of new math to reality. And the longer we spend in that silence, the, the better it gets, the more beautiful it gets, the more I can tie myself in my biologic state to that physical reality. 
And when we do things like human conversation, when we do what we're doing right now, which is two people through the magic of technologic communication, we're able to lace together millions of minds, hearts, beings to a single moment of silence, to a single coherent mirror for each of us to look into to see the beauty of ourselves. I am convinced that we can bend space-time and we can change that exit strategy for humanity and the stars will change and show that there is a different future and extinction is not the path ultimately but a rebirth is upon us here in these next few years that will reveal things that none of us can possibly imagine in our minds but all of us can feel in our hearts and in our core deep beneath the surface deep in our pelvic floor where the womb of each of us sits and vibrates with the true potential of this rebirth of each of us into our coherent original state and the spontaneous remission of the egoic mind the egoic split of humanity will just be gone one morning when we wake up and suddenly the the cat scan of humanity will no longer show a trace of the traumas the malignancies of our own behaviors and we will be healed so much so that there will not be a single scar left. I'm grateful for the conversation. Zach, what is a life of greatness to you? I suppose in the end, life is just great. It burns so bright. The organic state of living is so much brighter than the physics state of the energy fields that I've described or whatnot. The sun has extraordinary capacity to create light energy. Every star in the universe, in our little galaxy here, we have 1.2 billion suns or something ridiculous like that. 1.2 billion suns burning, and that's the brightest thing physics does in our universe is stars, suns. But a cubic centimeter of biologic tissue, whether it be in a monkey or a human or a tree, is full of these little things, mitochondria and, and the animals and plant plastids in the plant kingdom. And a cubic centimeter of these mitochondria, which is essentially saying a cubic centimeter of, of my body for, for every cell contains so many mitochondria that it basically fills the entire cytoplasm of my cells. And so a cubic centimeter of my body is burning something like 10,000 times brighter than the surface of the sun per cubic centimeter. And so a life is great for the capacity to concentrate light energy to that degree. For life to be the description of a concentration of the physical nature of light to such a potent state that it would create beauty in a trillion different versions, life is great. And there is no effort that you can take to make it more brilliant than it already is. You simply are brilliant. And that is a relief. Zach Bush, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You are a true blessing on this world. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I appreciate you. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.